mean, unfortunately, I have to say, yes, I think there is a, a small a small probability of nuclear war. Uh, but if you think about risk as being probability multiplied by consequence, there is a very serious risk here. Because even though it's not that likely, the consequences are, I mean, literally apocalyptic. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. In late July, China conducted a test of a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile that entered low Earth orbit, circled the globe, and struck a predetermined target in mainland China. The test allegedly stunned U.S. military and intelligence officials for its complexity, with Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, calling the test a near Sputnik moment. The test comes amidst an unprecedented evolution of China's nuclear arsenal, from a potential dramatic expansion of its nuclear warheads to rapid innovation in its nuclear delivery technologies. Why is China pursuing this nuclear evolution? How important was its hypersonic missile test? And what does this mean for the stability of the global nuclear balance and the prospects of nuclear war? To help us answer these questions, today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. James Acton. James Acton is the Jessica T. Matthews Chair and is the co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. A physicist by training, Acton's current research focuses on the escalation risks of advanced conventional weapons and the future of arms control. An expert in hypersonic conventional weapons, Acton has testified on the subject to the U.S. House of Representatives, Armed Services Committee, and the congressionally chartered U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right, James, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Great pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, James, in late July, China conducted a test of a missile carrying a hypersonic glide vehicle that circled the globe before striking a target back in China. The test allegedly stunned U.S. military officials with chairman of joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, kind of famously now saying it was a near Sputnik moment. To start off the podcast, I was wondering if you could kind of describe this test to our listeners and maybe tell us what a hypersonic weapon is and then what a hypersonic glide vehicle is. Sure. Well, maybe a good place to start is to talk about hypersonic weapons uh, in general. Uh, And the term hypersonic is generally used to mean something that travels faster than Mach 5. Uh, that is faster than five times the speed of sound. Now, that's not really a new technology. Um, common or garden ballistic missiles uh, have been traveling faster than Mach 5 since, I guess, the 1940s or early 1950s at some point. Um, what I think is new in contemporary hypersonic weaponry uh, is a combination of speed, range, maneuverability, payload, and accuracy. Um, that, that I think, is what's, is what's new and different here. Now, there's two different families of hypersonic vehicles. Uh, one are hypersonic cruise missiles, which is not going to be mostly what we're going to talk about today, I think, but hypersonic cruise missiles. They're like normal cruise missiles. They're basically unmanned aeroplanes. They sustain themselves via aerodynamic lift, Uh, and are powered over the entire course of their flight. The others are these maneuvering re-entry vehicles. Uh, Now, these are launched by rockets, just like a ballistic missile is. But then when they re-enter the atmosphere, they have an ability to maneuver. 
And you can really think of about of a spectrum of technologies here. So at one end of the spectrum, you have terminally guided reentry vehicles. These look very much like traditionally ballistic, traditional ballistic missiles, except for the reentry vehicle has fins on it that allows it to maneuver. At the other end, you have these glide vehicles, uh, which can generate a lot of aerodynamic lift and can potentially remain aloft for thousands of kilometers at a time. And you can imagine anything along this spectrum in between those two alternatives. Now, China's test was of a uh, basically a satellite that went into orbit briefly and then released a glider uh, that traveled apparently a very long distance. Um, now, we don't, there's a lot we don't know. Like, firstly, we should say that China has denied this was a weapon test. It has claimed it was a test of a uh, hypersonic reusable space vehicle. I think that's unlikely, but not totally impossible. Um, it's possible China tested in this way because it was really testing the glider. It ultimately wants to put this glider on um, um, a ballistic on a ground-based ballistic missile, but just decided to test it off this satellite uh, for one reason or another. Or it's, or it's possible this in, uh, uh, is what it ultimately intends to field, a system that would go into orbit some of the way around the Earth before releasing the glider. So there's a, there's, there are some details here that we don't yet know, though the basic outline of what happened in the test is clear. Right. And James, thank you for that overview. I, I'm sure our listeners appreciate it. And I guess something that I'm wondering is, you know, doing research for this podcast, I honestly, I watched a CSIS video um, published a year ago describing hypersonic missiles. And one of them back in, I believe it was 2020, talked about China's DF-17, which was a hypersonic glide missile. So I'm wondering what is so surprising about this particular test if we had known publicly about you know, China's China having hypersonic missiles previously. And I guess also, would you agree with the characterization um, of Mark Milley that it was a near Sputnik moment? Um, let's deal with those one at a time. So the DF-17, which is this mobile ground-based boost glide vehicle, has a much shorter range than the... Uh, system that China tested the other day. Um, so there is there is that difference. Um, I would not characterize this as a Sputnik moment. Uh, a Sputnik moment represented the emergence of a new threat. Um, the concern about Sputnik, um, which um, Lyndon Johnson, when he was Senate Majority Leader at the time, uh, he, you know, he he, he raised the risk, uh, 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 the possibility of the Soviets being able to uh, drop nuclear weapons from space on the United States, like kids dropping rocks on a, on cars from a highway overpass. Um, it there was very there was you know the Soviets had bombers at the time, but the nuclear threat they posed to the U.S. homeland was very limited. The Sputnik moment was the original Sputnik moment was a what represented a step change in the kind of threat that decision makers expected the United States to face. The China's new um, orbital gliding system does not represent a new threat to the United States, in my opinion. You know, I'm sitting here today uh, close enough to the Pentagon, which is not even that close. 
um, that, uh, you know, I could potentially be fried by a large nuclear blast over the Pentagon. I'm indifferent as to whether that, you know, if that happened, whether that would come from an ICBM or an orbital gliding system. The U.S. has been vulnerable to Chinese nuclear attack on the homeland since the early 1980s, um, perhaps even earlier. Um, So I don't think this represents a qualitatively new kind of threat for the United States to face. And neither do I think this test was particularly a surprise. I mean, without going into a huge amount of technical detail here, um, I believe we've been hearing reports of the testing of this system, not not from space, but from a land-based missile for, I don't know, the best part of seven or eight years now. We've been warned about um, Chinese long-range hypersonic glide development. Um, I am skeptical that people who were following this from within the government were really caught by all that much surprise by this test. And James, I'm I'm wondering if you could play maybe devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm. What, what would be an argument from someone who says, you know, this is a step change? Um, I, you know, some of the things I've read I believe it was in the Financial Times article initially, was that a glide missile could, uh, I guess, go over the South Pole and then kind of avoid U.S. missile defenses, whereas an ICBM uh, maybe couldn't. What? Yeah. So that, that's totally one of the arguments that's made. Um, you know, this uh, either a very long range glide vehicle or one of these glide vehicles launched by a satellite that could indeed go over the South Pole. And we have no way of uh, we have no radar coverage uh, pointing in that direction. However, uh, the reason I don't you know, the reason that I don't worry about that in one sense is that U.S. missile defenses have never been designed uh, to deal well. Sorry, I should be ever so slightly careful here. Uh, The very earliest U.S. missile defenses, homeland missile defenses from the Johnson administration were explicitly premised on China. We gave up that system with the ABM Treaty in 1972. Since then, no U.S. missile defenses have been premised on China. Uh, Even the Trump administration, which loved itself some missile defenses, was very, very clear that it did not, it was not developing missile defenses to deal with China. So, you know, a Chinese ICBM attack launched basically over the North Pole towards the United States, we could detect that just fine. We could track it all along the way. We couldn't stop it with our missile defenses. They're not designed to do so, and neither could, you know, uh, 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 neither would they be effective in doing so. So, you know, this whole argument about missile defenses is based on the incorrect assumption that our missile defenses are currently designed and capable of intercepting Chinese ballistic missiles. You hear other arguments about we would have less warning time, which is not really true because uh, U.S. early warning satellites would pick up the launch of one of these systems from China, uh, even if our radars wouldn't be able to follow it around the South Pole. I think actually a lot of the fear, and we can discuss this, I'm sure we will end up discussing this more later, but stems from the belief that China's nuclear doctrine is changing. Um, um, Suffice to say for now that that may be true, but I actually don't think this particular system is terribly strong evidence for that. There are, there are. I'm actually much more worried about the development of China's shorter-range missiles, uh, signif- uh, 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 insofar as any Chinese development signify a change in China's doctrine. 
I wanted to go a bit beyond um, China's hypersonic missile test that you um, laid out just now. It appears that China is undertaking a dramatic expansion and modernization of its existing nuclear arsenal. Could you describe some of the findings from the summer and recently that led researchers and other observers to this conclusion? Sure. Um, I think the first thing to say is it's very helpful to divide China's nuclear modernization into two conceptually different buckets. You have modernization of very long-range forces that could hit the U.S., and you could, ha- and you have modernization of regional forces designed to hit targets in the region. Um, you know, um, Japan, Guam, other places in the Asia Pacific. I think those are two actually quite conceptually separate um, developments, in my opinion. In terms of the long-range stuff, uh, some of what we've seen has been um, uh, open, uh, you know, has been shown by uh, open-source satellite imagery. For example, China is building uh, very large number, fairly large numbers. I mean, uh, a few hundred silos, at, uh, probably, you know, three different deployment areas around the country. Um, we also know from U.S. government reports and U.S. government statements. I mean, the testing of this uh, hypersonic uh, or orbital hypersonic glider was based on uh, uh, officials briefing journalists privately. You get these this annual report that very recently came out on military and security developments involving the People's Republic of China. It kind of reported, as it has done for a number of years on China, so-called moving its missiles, so placing multiple warheads on individual missiles. Um, we know for also, for example, that China is developing an early warning system and maybe considering adopting a law, in fact, is very likely moving towards a launch under a under attack posture in which China might launch its nuclear weapons if it detected an incoming strike from the US, but before those weapons hit the ground. To my mind, this bucket of developments, I actually don't regard it as that threatening, um, insofar as I think it's primarily about continuing to ensure that China's nuclear forces could survive a US first strike and retaliate against the US. That is merely in preserving the status quo indefinitely into the future. As I've emphasized already, the U.S. has been vulnerable to a Chinese nuclear strike for, you know, 40 plus years now. Then you have these developments in shorter range nuclear forces, many of which are systems that have been openly exhibited by the Chinese. These include the DF-17 intermediate range hypersonic glide vehicle that we've been talking about. There's a DF-26 ballistic missile. Uh, These are all dual, uh, 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 both the 17 and the 26 are believed to be dual use missiles. That is, they can have nuclear or conventional warheads. I, I, I worry these developments, I, I can't really interpret them in any other way except a desire to have credible options to fight a limited nuclear war. I think there's a big question about whether China envisions only responding to limited U.S. nuclear use or whether China potentially envisages first nuclear use in contravention of its no first use pledge. I, I don't know the answer to that. But, you know, if you're looking to make the case that China's nuclear doctrine is changing, 
it's actually the regional forces that I think provide pretty clear and compelling evidence for that. The very recent um, Pentagon-China military power report estimates that China might seek uh, may seek to quadruple its existing nuclear arsenal from 200 to 1,000 warheads by 2030. Um, in effect, confirming you know many of the fi- research findings and uh, the projected trends uh, by analysts, and you know you just describe a you know per, a two-part disparate nuclear modernization efforts carried out by Beijing today. I'm wondering what might be driving this nuclear arms buildup, and are the is the strategic rationale same or different for the two different channels of modernization? Um. So the the warheads uh, contribute to both of those buckets of modernization. Uh, I mean, China is simultaneously building up its regional forces and it's building up its intercontinental forces, um, and it it needs more warheads for both of those. Um, I have to say, I did not find this claim about uh, a thousand nuclear warheads. Um, I think it was by the end of the decade, to be entirely convincing. Um, the I have no doubt that China is expanding its nuclear arsenal and building up more nuclear warheads. Um, what the Defense Intelligence Agency has previously said is China only has enough fissile material on hand. Uh, that's the plutonium or highly enriched uranium that it needs to build nuclear weapons um, to field a force of, you know, rough, roughly double its current size. So, you know, four or five hundred warheads. To get to a thousand warheads, it needs to restart fissile material production, uh, which it's not currently undertaking. Now, it's totally possible it's going to do that. But what the report said was that uh, is, is that it thinks that China's fast reactors um, that it's building are its means of producing this material for weapons. And I'm skeptical of that. Um, this is a very difficult technology to get working. Um, the timelines for producing fissile material via fast reactors are not just long, but unpredictable. Um, you know, my view is that if China is going to build more fissile material, it will kind of use much more vanilla traditional technology that it used to produce its first batch of fissile material um, and not kind of do this moonshot on this incredibly difficult technology for military purposes. So, I, you know, as I say, like, I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if China um, does restart fissile material production. I would be fairly surprised if it's actually with these fast reactors, but maybe I'll be proven wrong about that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to expand a bit more on on the two uh, the two bu- different buckets mm-hmm. of modernization you touched on, you know, and perhaps an area where you know the two different um, approaches might converge is the question of Taiwan, and you know some scholars you know haven't you know invoked the so called stability instability or stability instability paradox in suggesting that China's nuclear buildup. You know, both regionally and you know, long range, maybe an attempt to achieve nuclear parity with the United States, so that and its allies, so that you know, China can launch a conventional conflict against the United States in places like Taiwan without the threat of nuclear uh, U.S. nuclear retaliation. Do you agree with this argument? I think that is what China's regional developments 
or rather its development in regional missiles is about. I don't think that's what China's developments in intercontinental missiles are about. I mean, in terms of the regional developments, as the conventional balance in the West Pacific shifts in China's favor, the US potentially has to threaten nuclear use if it were losing a war against Taiwan in the West Pacific. I'm not necessarily arguing this would be a good thing to do, but you know, my point rather is if the US finds itself in a war with China over Taiwan and China is winning that war, um, you know, a US leader may decide to make nuclear threats or conceivably even nuclear use. Uh, I strongly suspect that China's regional missiles are a means of combating that by giving China credible limited responses in response to US nuclear use and conceivably even its own credible first use options. Now, ultimately, if you had a nuclear exchange escalate, um, you know, China wants a survivable second strike capability um, so that you know its ability to reach the US can't eliminate China's ability to nuke the US. Um, it's had that for a long time. Um, you know, I've, I've continually emphasized this. The, U, the U.S. and China exist in a state of so-called mutual vulnerability, and they have done for decades and decades and decades. So, you know, China surely wants to entrench that status of mutual vulnerability. But, I, but you know, from my perspective, there's no there's no change there. We're already vulnerable at the strategic level to one another. Where I think there is a change, though, is uh, China developing. Uh, you know, rungs on the escalation ladder up to an all-out nuclear exchange. So following this kind of escalation of China's nuclear arsenal, how has the United States government reacted to this? Mostly with a lot of condemnation, to be honest. Um, the, you know, we've, we, we've heard on the one hand, a, you know, uh, a criticism from the State Department and the Defense Department and concerns about these actions. Um, we have on the more positive side, from my perspective, seen a desire to try to engage China uh, in a dialogue to reduce nuclear risks. Uh, there was the virtual summit, if I remember, on Monday of this week, it seems like a long time ago now, between um, Presidents Biden and Xi. Um, and after that summit, Jake Sullivan, the US National Security Advisor, um, said Something I forget the exact wording he chose because um, it's been reported that he said that China uh, and the U.S. have agreed to a dialogue over nuclear issues. His actual wording was much more carefully hedged than that, but you know at least suggested that uh, the U.S. the U.S. and China might may start a dialogue on nuclear issues in the in the near future. In the slightly longer term, the question is arising about whether the U.S. needs extra capabilities to deal with China, uh, nuclear capabilities to deal with China. I mean, you know, on the conventional side, there's a whole bunch of capabilities the military wants to uh, 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 deploy vis-a-vis China. On the nuclear side, you know, the Biden administration is currently conducting its nuclear posture review. Uh, so it's going to have to, um, um, you know, it is considering as part of that process whether it needs additional nuclear capabilities to deal with China. Um, you may want those in a few niche areas. I mean, you know, depending, there's, uh, you know, 
there are there are arguments for for better sensing technology uh, to try to you know be able to sense be- Chinese incoming weapons better. I mean, I think we already have considerable capabilities in that regard. But at the end of the day, you know, Russia has a much larger and more capable nuclear arsenal than China. So I am very skeptical, and I think this is probably where the Biden administration is going to come out that the US needs additional nuclear capabilities to deal with China. Now, that's not necessarily to say that nuclear deterrence is always going to work. I'm not that sanguine about that. But I don't think more nuclear capabilities against China will solve the reasons why nuclear deterrence against China could fail. Kind of talking about um, the U.S.'s own nuclear arsenal, is the United States developing its own hypersonic delivery systems? And are we kind of falling behind in this area compared to China? So the U.S. is very much developing its own hypersonic delivery systems. Um, Now, the U.S. focus is exclusively on non-nuclear hypersonic technology. Um, You know, China, as we've been discussed, there's this very long range orbital gliding system uh, that I strongly suspect will be exclusively nuclear armed. Um, Russia has also fielded now a very long range intercontinental glider that I think is exclusively nuclear armed. And meanwhile, both Russia and China have dual use systems so that can accommodate a nuclear or a conventional warhead of much shorter ranges. The US, on the other hand, is focused exclusively on non-nuclear hypersonic weapons. Um, It hasn't fielded any yet, but there's a bunch of development programs in the pipeline. Um, So in one sense, the U.S. has fallen behind uh, in that China and Russia have fielded these technologies and the U.S. hasn't. I think that is a slightly misleading comparison, though. Um, The U.S. in many ways has been running a different race from Russia and China. You know, in the 2010s, the U.S. was focused on incredibly long-range hypersonic systems for non-nuclear warheads. This is the most demanding technology that it could possibly try and develop. Um, much harder than developing a nuclear-armed glider of the same range because of the accuracy requirements. Um, if a conventional, uh, if a nuclear warhead misses a target by 100 meters, probably going to still destroy the target. If a conventional warhead misses the target by 100 meters, it's not going to have any effect whatsoever. So the US started off trying to develop these enormously um, long-range, very, very technologically demanding gliders. Um, Those efforts proved extremely difficult and didn't come to fruition. And over time, the US has focused increasingly on regional range systems. So it started on the shorter range systems later than Russia and China did, but it has an enormous at least a very substantial history of testing and experience in this field. Um, So, you know, my sense here is that there is a lot of U.S. latent capability uh, that hasn't yet been deployed, but that is kind of underlying the U.S. technology base in this area. I I still suspect is stronger than Russia's or China's. Great. So I guess to kind of close this out, I know some people and many of our listeners actually may view China's nuclear arsenal evolution with some amount of fear. And is that warranted? And is the threat of nuclear war actually rising? Is there anything we can do to lower this threat? I mean, unfortunately, I have to say, yes, I think there is a 
a small a small probability of nuclear war. Uh, but if you think about risk as being probability multiplied by consequence, there is a very serious risk here. Because even though it's not that likely, the consequences are, I mean, literally apocalyptic. And worse than that, I think for a whole range of reasons, the probability of nuclear war is rising. Now, fun, you know, the most fundamental drivers there are political. You know, as US-Russia and US-Chinese relations get worse, the probability of a conventional war rises, which in turn makes the probability of a nuclear war rise. Uh, there are also a bunch of kind of military technical factors that I think contribute to uh, the danger of a nuclear war. Um, you know, one of these is the problem of what I term entanglement, which is the growing interactions between the nuclear and non-nuclear domains. Um, I have an article from a few years ago uh, in international security called Escalation Through Entanglement that uh, explains some of these dynamics. But to give you one example, U.S. early warning satellites, um, that, are, that is the satellites that detect missile launches, are used for both nuclear and non-nuclear missions, uh, including, for example, queuing uh, regional ballistic missile defenses against uh, Chinese uh, uh, non-nuclear missiles in, in the Asia Pacific. And if our missile defenses were proving effective in intercepting Chinese non-nuclear ballistic missiles, China might start shooting at those early warning satellites. Uh, you know, potentially Beijing's aims might be exclusively uh, to ensure its non-nuclear regional missiles in the Asia-Pacific could penetrate uh, regional missile defenses. Uh, but the effect of strikes against early warning satellites, perhaps unintended, would be to degrade the U.S. nuclear command and control ar architecture. You know, it could look like China was preparing for a nuclear strike against the U.S. homeland. Um, in fact, the Trump administration uh, threatened explicitly to use nuclear weapons in the event of non-nuclear attacks against our nuclear command and control system. So, you know, that's just one example of these uh, entanglement dynamics that I think uh, increase the risk and danger uh, of a nuclear war. Um, as I say, you know, China's gliders specifically, I'm actually not so worried about because it doesn't represent a qualitatively new threat to the U.S., but the nature of that threat is deeply concerning because it involves nuclear weapons. Um, in terms of what can be done about it, um, you know, it's tough. Um, I, I, I think there is a lot that the US and China and the US and Russia could do cooperatively. And I very much hope that these US-Chinese talks uh, pan out. Um, you know, just to give you one example of the kind of measure that I think it, I would like to see cooperatively um, is the US, Russia and China could agree to establish uh, what I what uh, colleagues and I call keep out zones uh, around the high altitude satellites used for nuclear command and control. So basically, each of the US, Russia and China would commit not to maneuver their satellites uh, to within the, uh, the keep out zones of other states satellites. So, so, so they wouldn't threaten those satellites. Um, um, you know, there is stuff that could be done. I think there's a lot that each country should do unilaterally, uh, showing restraint in terms of uh, acquisition, war planning, crisis management, um, the conduct of a conflict, should that ever arise. Um, but, you know, one is very much fighting uh, uh, into a headwind here, uh, given the extent to which uh, political relations between the US and China and also the US and Russia are getting worse. Well, on that note, James, we really want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a, a pleasure learning from your insights. 
Well, I'm sorry I couldn't end on a happier note, but it's been <laughs> um, um, great to have this conversation today. So uh, thanks to uh, all of you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.